KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Egregious police misconduct revealed in newly released records. I guess the agencies are following the law, but it doesn't feel like that we know about all the discrimination that could be going on out there. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Saturday Amtrak service is back after repairs on the rail. The corridor itself is one of the busiest uh, inner city passenger rail corridors of the nation. It's historically been the second busiest uh, inner city passenger rail corridor in the United States. Could pay transparency laws put privacy at risk? And how comics and social justice intersect? That's ahead on Midday Edition. Since the beginning of the year, California law enforcement agencies have been required to release records involving police misconduct, specifically discrimination. The state law, SB 16, went into effect last year, but agencies had a one-year grace period. It was designed to make policing in the state more transparent. A story by CBS 8 is highlighting some of the most egregious instances of misconduct from newly released records. That includes a San Diego police officer who was caught yelling, quote, I kill N-words for a living. I'm a cop. KPBS editor Claire Trageser wrote a series of stories last year based on records released under this law that revealed discrimination in the sheriff's department. She's also been digging through the SDPD records and joins us now to talk about what she's found. Claire, thanks for being here. Thank you. But can you briefly tell us what SB 16 requires of police departments in the state? Yeah, definitely. So it's um, an, an additional law from State Senator Nancy Skinner um, that builds off her previous work of requiring uh, records and video of police shootings and use of force incidents where they cause um, the definition is great bodily injury. Those have to be released. And now this builds on it to say that records where there's been a sustained finding of discrimination, and that can be gender discrimination, racial discrimination, religious, um, you know, what have you, also sustained findings of uh, unlawful arrest or seizure. So like if someone, you know, searches a police officer, searches someone's car or house or something like that, and they they didn't have um, legal jurisdiction to do that. Um, so th- those those have to be released. Um, and then ad- additionally, when um, there's force used that's deemed to be, um, you know, unnecessary. And when someone doesn't intervene, when they see a fellow officer using uh, excessive force. So so those are the new records that have to be released, um, as you said, uh, at the beginning of this year, because the law went into effect, but it gave a one-year grace period. Mm. And as you call through these documents and these records, what type of discrimination are you seeing most? 
Sure. So, so yeah, we've been going through a lot. Um, the San Diego Sheriff's Department began releasing records right away at the beginning of last year. Um, and so we've gone through everything that, that they've released. And from the Sheriff's Department, um, most of the cases were, were more uh, sexual harassment and gender discrimination than uh, racial discrimination. So we saw a few cases of, of racist comments in the sheriff's department, but far more uh, sexist comments, um, sexual harassment, things like that. Uh, Oceanside had one case of discrimination, and that was, again, a sexual harassment case. And, and that's it so far. Aside from now, the San Diego Police Department has released about 90 records um, just at the end of last month. Um, so the all the other agencies say that they uh, don't have any records to release. Hmm. Uh, and with that, I mean, have agencies been forthcoming with the information they're supposed to release? It's hard to say. Um, most agencies here in San Diego County say that they don't have any records to release. They don't have any sustained findings of discrimination. And this is the law, so I guess we we can believe them on that. The question then is why? Is it really that there's been no discrimination um, among those police agencies locally? Or is it that because it takes a, a sustained finding for the record to be released, that means that their internal affairs investigations are not coming back with these sustained findings? Maybe they get a complaint that someone said, you know, an officer said something racist during a traffic stop and they look into it and they decide that that that's unfounded. Um, there isn't enough evidence. And so then we would we just wouldn't know about that case um, because it didn't result in a sustained finding or something that I've reported on a lot previously is there's hesitancy among officers to maybe report on each other. So if they hear someone do do something, um, they're reluctant to to take it to internal affairs or file a report because they're worried about retribution. So, um, you know, I, I guess the agencies are following the law, but it doesn't feel like there's, you know, that we know about all the discrimination that could be going on out there. And this isn't the only law regarding police records. You had the story last week about the release of video showing the San Diego Sheriff's Department tasing Joe Young Jr. and igniting a lighter in his pocket. Uh, and then stomping that fire out, this video should have been automatically released, right? Why wasn't it? Exactly. So this is an example of the, the law is in effect, and it says that any time there's been an incident resulting in great bodily injury, those records and video need to be released. In this case, uh, the sheriff's department said... Uh, no, this didn't result in great bodily injury, even though Mr. Young was taken to the hospital and obviously had burns on his body and was, like you said, stomped on by the deputies to try and put the fire out. Um, and so at first they pushed back and they said, we're not going to release this record. Um, and the First Amendment Coalition got involved. They're a, a, a legal advocacy organization. And then the records were released just last week. Um, so, you know, this is to me an example of apparently uh, an activist, a San Diego activist, Tasha Williams, knew about this case and asked for the records to be released. Then the sheriff's department said no. Then the First Amendment Coalition got involved. But if if she hadn't known about it and no one else had known about it and asked for these records, it might have gone 
unreleased and, you know, hidden from the public forever because no one knew that it happened. And the sheriff's department, you know, wasn't going to release the records until someone specifically asked. So, you know, I think these new laws are helpful in terms of forcing departments to hand over these records, but they don't go all the way because if there's a case that the departments aren't going to release unless someone knows about, um, you know, those may never come forth to the public. Mm. I mean, and we have people in the public like Tasha who shine a light on injustice. Uh, And as journalists, our job is often to shine that light on injustice and misconduct. Do you think this law will make it easier for us to do that? Yes, definitely. I mean, it goes so much further than um, than what we had before, which was nothing, basically. So, you know, now these sustained findings do have to be brought forward. And, um, you know, as we're seeing, we're, we're learning about some incidents of discrimination, sexual harassment, excessive use of force, things like that. So definitely the law makes it easier for, for journalists to see what's happening in departments. But like I said, I think, you know, it doesn't go all the way. And CBS 8 reported Friday on some of the discrimination records they're focusing on, highlighting some egregious behavior. Can you talk about any of those cases? Yes, definitely. So um, CBS has gone through all the records that that we have as well um, that the police department has released and pulled out some of the examples of um, specifically of racial discrimination and things that the San Diego, you know, San Diego police officers have done in the past. Um, One of them, which is in their headline, was uh, officers were called to the scene of someone who was who was drunk and disorderly. Um, And it turned out that that person was a police officer. Um, I think they didn't know that when they were called to the scene. And then when they got there, you know, he was having a lot of issues with his behavior. He was at a motel and threatening people and, you know, picking fights with people and things like that. And then at at one point during the arrest, um, he said, you know, it's I'm a police officer and I kill um, black people. But he used a, a, a racial slur for black people. Um, so, you know, that's the headline of the CBS story. And that's obviously, you know, the the most egregious example that that's in there. There are other examples where office an officer said something to a, a Hispanic woman about that his police dog liked dark meat. Um, there's, you know, various complaints and uh, examples of of other racial discrimination in there as well. And what are the implications of all this? Does this connect? Have you been able to connect the dots between this and the racial disparities that we see in use of force and even traffic stops? Yeah, I mean, that's something that that we are continuing to work on um, and look at in terms of, you know, we have these kind of examples of bad behavior. What does that tell us about the department overall, if anything? Um, or, you know, and, and how are officers uh, treated when when these cases happen? You know, what is the discipline? Um, you know, what what happens to officers and how seriously does the department take these incidents? So so we're continuing to look at what the discipline is when when things happen, like these incidents, whether officers are fired or suspended or reprimanded. And that kind of gives an example of how seriously the department uh, takes these incidents. So those are things that we're continuing to go through in our reporting. I've been speaking with KPBS's Claire Tregesser. Claire, thank you for joining us. Thank you. 
Amtrak weekend service returned on Saturday for the first time since operations were suspended late last year for a stabilization project in San Clemente. While weekday services still remain suspended, the change represents a big step forward in normalizing operations for the second busiest rail corridor in the nation. Joining me now with more on the news is Eric Carpenter, spokesman for the Orange County Transportation Authority, and Jason Jewell, managing director of the Los Angeles, San Diego, San Luis Obispo Rail Corridor Agency. And welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much. So can we start off by putting into context how busy this rail corridor is and how critical it is to transportation in the region? The corridor itself has one of the busiest uh, inner city passenger rail corridors of the nation. It's historically been the second busiest uh, inner city passenger rail corridor in the United States with nearly um, 3 million uh, riders um, on an annual basis, as well as 26 daily trains, and this is pre-COVID. But the corridor itself also plays an important role to freight and commuter rail as well. And Eric, this announcement marks the return of weekend service, but not during the weekdays. Uh, why is that? So the Orange County Transportation Authority that owns this rail line has been conducting emergency repair work on this rail line in southern San Clemente uh, since October. And uh, that work continues during the week. And because it's such a tight workspace for the safety of everybody, uh, we're we're continuing to have uh, no rail service, no passenger rail service during the week so we can complete that work. Jason, how has commuter service for riders who use the line for work uh, been supplemented in the meantime? Yeah, so the the Amtrak Pacific Surfliner service has been providing a bus bridge service between the Irvine and Oceanside stations. So we're able to provide that vital link for our customers uh, for the inner city passenger rail service to be able to get down to and from uh, San Diego and the Orange County and LA areas. So we have been providing that bus bridge service so that our customers are able to to make their journey down south. And Eric, can we get an an update on the repairs that are currently underway and, and what these repairs actually look like in the first place? Sure. As I mentioned, we've been doing this emergency work uh, since October. And the exciting news is that we have finished the first row of ground anchors along this approximately a 700-foot stretch of rail line. And that first row of ground anchors a little over a hundred has been completed. And the exciting news is that since that's been completed, we've detected no additional movement in the track, which made us feel safe in making the decision to safely restore passenger service through the area. And we're excited about that. As I mentioned, in the meantime, we continue to do further work there and installing a second row of ground anchors. And is there any timetable on a return for weekday service? That decision will be made once the um, the work is completed. And as, right now we're doing that second row of uh, ground anchors. We anticipate that that should be done by the end of March at this point. You mentioned that freight operations are still ongoing despite the repairs. I imagine they're running at a reduced capacity. Is that correct? This line is a very vital line uh, for freight traffic, particularly between the ports of San Diego and points further north, including the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. So throughout this entire process, there have been at least one freight train a day uh, running through there at reduced speeds. Um, But because of the work that's been done there now, uh, we understand that that's picking up to the traditional number of freight trains, which is about three or four a day. And we're excited to see that. 
Talking big picture here, uh, concerns over future erosion and the stability of the line aren't going away anytime soon. I'm wondering if I could get your thoughts on the future of this corridor and what kind of infrastructure is going to be needed in the near future. You know, this is clearly emergency work. We, we found ourselves in a situation where we needed to repair the line to get it operating normally again, and we feel good about the repairs that are being made. At the same time, We understand that there's a long-term solution that we need to look at, and OCTA is in the process of starting a study that will um, work with all of our partners, um, and including the cities along the the corridor um, and our state and federal partners, to look at a longer-term fix, which we don't know what that'll look like at this point, but it could potentially even look at maybe relocating the line, but that fix is clearly years down the line and and we need help from all of our partners to make that happen. And Jason, what are your thoughts? Well, um, as the Los Angeles Corridor Agency, uh, we do not own any of the 350 mile uh, of the corridor. We uh, there's various uh, right of way track owners along along the entire corridor, but we do support and want to continue to coordinate with our right of way partners and our member agencies, including Orange County Transportation Authority, um, in their efforts for a longer term solution. And we, we do recognize the importance of ensuring corridor-wide resiliency. And we are working with our, our partners and our, and our stakeholders, including our member agencies, to look for um, any and all um, state and federal funding opportunities that might be available to help support um, longer-term resiliency efforts. I've been speaking with Eric Carpenter, spokesman for the Orange County Transportation Authority, and Jason Jewell, managing director for the Los Angeles-San Diego-San Luis Obispo Rail Corridor Agency. Thanks to both of you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. California just enacted a law that requires employers to post the pay range of jobs they're seeking applicants for. It's part of a national movement toward pay transparency. But does making salaries public empower low-wage workers, or does it just put privacy at risk? KPBS SciTech reporter Thomas Fudge has the story. On a cool, sunny January noon hour, Gustavo Arcia is having a lunch to go with his son near the Prado Bridge in Balboa Park. He used to manage a company that worked on government contracts. I asked him whether he thought that making people's salaries public was an invasion of privacy. I think it's up to people. It's up to people whether they think that it touches something very personal to them. For me, I don't care. Public opinion on the subject is definitely mixed. University of San Diego law professor Aurelie Lobel says laws that keep salary information private go too far, and they run contrary to the public interest. We've seen also over the years privacy used not just as the shield but as a sword to hide from public accountability. Privacy oftentimes serves the more powerful. For example, The gender and racial pay gaps have been very stagnant because people basically don't know that they're underpaid. Lobel, author of a book called The Equality Machine, adds that open information allows us to make better and more equitable decisions in workplaces. Elizabeth Lyons is a professor of management at UC San Diego. She has studied the effects of pay transparency on gender-based pay gaps, gaps that she says are clearly a problem. 
we might think it's unfair, but beyond that, it impacts women's kind of willingness to enter and stay in the labor market. So that has implications for the economy as a whole. Lyons took a look at a situation where women did know they were earning less. A law in the Canadian province of Ontario required all organizations that receive government funding to make public the name, position, and salary of those making over $100,000. She told KPBS Midday Edition the law did create more pay equity in the Ontario universities that she examined, raising female pay by about 4%, but not for the reasons they expected. They did not see individual women acting empowered and negotiating for higher pay. Organizations are proactively reducing gender pay gaps in ways that we think are consistent with kind of reputation management. In other words, the organizations corrected the pay gaps because they were worried about their public image. Critics of pay transparency say it's fraught with difficulty. Pam Dixon is a privacy advocate and founder of the World Privacy Forum. She says revealing the fact that somebody is paid poorly may hurt them, not empower them. She says if you're classified as poor, it's harder to get good terms when you buy something. And when they apply for a job? Employers will look at their past pay and say, oh, well, this was what you were paid in X work. We're going to continue to pay you along these incremental lines when that's not what's needed. What's needed is real pay equity. Back in Balboa Park, people I spoke with said, when you enter the labor market, you should know what the going rate of pay is. That gives you leverage. Benjamin Arcia told me the price of labor should be regarded in the same way as prices of consumer goods. You need transparency to make comparisons. So I I think that just as technology increased the transparency in real estate or in other realms, we're just seeing communications technology take place in, in the labor market as well. Felicia, who didn't give her last name, said she's seen workplaces where knowing the salaries of your fellow workers has led to low morale and hard feelings. The only people that have shared their salary with me is if they've already left the company I was working with and they're at another company. Then they feel comfortable because it's not as uh, competitive, I guess. Okay, and how much money do you make? I don't say. (laughs) (laughs) Studies estimate American women earn 84 cents for every dollar that a man makes. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. When storms battered California last month, the streets of Planada became rivers, hundreds of homes flooded, and the whole town was evacuated. Now people in this rural Central Valley community are trying to put their lives back together. But as KQED's Vanessa Roncano reports, many undocumented residents are struggling to access assistance. And a note... This story only uses first names for the undocumented people in this story to protect their privacy. Husband and wife Rufino and Esmeralda came to Planada 15 years ago in search of better opportunities. They worked in the local fields, almonds, grapes, figs, tomatoes. They saved up to start a small business selling popsicles and snacks. The flood took out everything, their livelihood and much of their home. Rufino stands in his driveway, assessing the mold starting to grow on the still damp seats of his ice cream truck. Oh no, un desastre aquí, no, aquí tiramos todos los freezer, estaban llenos de mercancía, los tenía bien llenos yo. He says the water destroyed five commercial freezers full of merchandise, plus the truck, around twenty-three thousand dollars in damage. 
Inside the house, Esmeralda points out cabinet drawers warped from the water. For now, Rufino and Esmeralda have moved into an apartment at a migrant farm worker housing complex on the edge of the town. They're among 40 families temporarily relocated there. Like many other undocumented immigrants in Planada, they still haven't gotten significant financial help. Overall, early estimates showed nearly a quarter of the homes here were impacted. All day, people drive down the main street in trucks loaded with beds, sofas, refrigerators. They unload everything into dumpsters lining the road. All these dumpsters have people's lives in it. From the sidewalk, longtime resident Alicia Rodriguez looks on. The losses are especially painful for a community where the poverty rate is almost three times the state's. Rodriguez is one of the local volunteers collecting and distributing donations. Clothes, socks, shoes. She's running a makeshift resource center out of a vacant commercial space. Air mattresses for those that are sleeping on the floor. We're going to be doing microwaves. But the big help, the kind that will rebuild a damaged home and replace its contents, that's left to private insurance or federal disaster assistance from FEMA. And, Rodriguez says, many residents here can't turn to either. They're slipping through the cracks. Because to get help from FEMA, you need a social security number. And local leaders estimate as many as half of residents in Planada are undocumented. What I see here is that a lot of them are not going to probably get the FEMA because they're not applying. Down the street from Rodriguez's donation center, a weary-looking mechanic named Eduardo is crouched beside a car, changing a tire. The house he rents with his wife and five kids is half a block from here, in the epicenter of the destruction. During the flood, the water was almost waist-high in his house. His family just bought new furniture and appliances six months ago. They don't have insurance. Eduardo's heard FEMA can help cover these losses, but he figures he's not eligible because he's undocumented. Se me complica a mí un poco, pues no tengo seguro social. Federal and local officials say undocumented residents can get help as long as someone in the home has a valid social security number. In Eduardo's case, he could apply through his U.S.-born kids. So we strongly encourage those individuals to take advantage of the opportunity and come open a claim. Sharon Wardale Trejo is a spokesperson for the county who's been trying to get that message out. In the first two days after FEMA opened a recovery center in Planada, she says a total of 45 households filed claims. She sees that as progress. So we're seeing an incremental increase as probably the word gets out there that, hey, you know what, it was okay, and they were able to help me. But for some, that help is out of reach. In what's left of Rufino and Esmeralda's living room, they point out their son's high school diploma. One precious possession the floodwaters spared. He's a freshman at UC Berkeley, in many ways living out the promise that brought them to this country. But their American-born son can't help them here. Because he's no longer at home, they can't use his social security number to apply for aid. Rufino says he's the reason they want support, to help him get ahead. They tried multiple times to get help from FEMA and the Small Business Administration, but got turned away. For those of us who don't have papers, there's no assistance, Rufino says. 
Nos vamos a ir al fil nosotros. If they can't get aid, he says they'll have no choice but to go back to working in the fields. O sea, no nos queda otra. They'll keep looking for help. They were told to turn to charitable organizations. But so far, he says, all they've gotten is a $250 gift card. That was KQED's Vanessa Rancano reporting from Planada. Nicholas Said was the son of an African general who went on to become a hero in the American Civil War. During the time of Reconstruction, articles were written about his life. But his name has since been lost in history. San Diego journalist Dean Colbreth was first captivated by Nicholas Said's story while researching the history of Muslims in the United States. Colbert's book, The Sergeant, The Incredible Life of Nicholas Said, comes out Tuesday. He spoke with Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken. So who is Nicholas Said? Tell us about the subject of this book. Nicholas Said was a sergeant in the Union Army during the Civil War, but had a history like no other sergeant or probably no other soldier had. He was born in the center of Africa. He was born in a thousand-year-old kingdom called Borno in the center of Africa. His father was a general of this horseback army that would ride into battle with wearing coats of chain mail and wearing steel helmets covered with their turbans and everything. They looked like they were riding out of the Arabian Nights or something. He grew up a pretty privileged life. His father was very wealthy. Uh, his father was the governor of six provinces in Borno. He went to school learning Arabic and learning the Quran. And Arabic was the first of nine languages that he, nine foreign languages he ended up speaking, including the two languages his parents spoke. But he ended up, after a series of travels that we can talk about, he ended up in the United States right on the eve of the Civil War. And he joined the Union Army almost at the beginning of the time that they first started allowing African-American soldiers in. And he fought in the Carolinas, stayed in the South after the war, became one of the first Black voting registrars in the nation, ended up teaching reading and writing to the children of freed slaves, and did a lecture tour throughout the South about the achievements that might be accomplished by the Africans, as he put it. And the story you tell about Nicholas Said, it's, it's so rich, you know, it's hard to know where to even start. So I guess I'll turn to your opening words. You write that he was born to be a fighter. Why did you feel that was the best way to introduce him to your readers? The way he gained his fame, I think, in this country, the first thing that people noticed about him was his joining the Union Army. You know, the day that he became a sergeant, there were, was a glowing article written in Massachusetts newspapers that ended up going out throughout the world because, again, of his impressive history in Africa, to answer your question, like I'd say, his father was one of the most important generals the commanding general of the army of Borno, commanding thousands of men. So when he was a kid, he studied how to be a soldier. He played war outside of the gates of Kukua, which is the um, capital of Borno, where, where he lived. Unfortunately, when his father died, he went to boarding school. And after boarding school, he decided to go and celebrate uh, with his friends 
went up to the northern part of the country and was captured by slave raiders, by Tuareg slave raiders from, from the Sahara, who captured him, put him up for sale as a slave to come not to the Americas, but to go first to Libya and then to Turkey before ending up being freed by a Russian ambassador to Turkey and then spending several years, about five or six years, traveling throughout Europe, crossing paths with people like Queen Victoria and Emperor Louis Napoleon. And I'm curious, how did you first learn about his story? And, and you know, what made you ultimately want to write a book about it? Well, right after 9-11, and this, you know, this goes back more than 20 years, I wasn't working full-time on the book, but, but its origins started right after 9-11 when the Union Tribune assigned me to the Middle East to cover Arab reactions to 9-11, I was talking to some Palestinian students in Bethlehem, Bethlehem University, and I asked them what they felt about 9-11. They, they, we had a very good conversation. And then they started asking me questions about how long Muslims have been in the United States, you know, what the history of Muslims in the United States was, what, you know, what pressures they may have faced, you know, the, what success stories there might have been. And when I got home, I started, you know, that was a question that I hadn't been prepared for. I started looking it up, and I was very amazed to find Muslims going back almost all the way to the Mayflower, back to the 1630s in, in New Amsterdam, when there were several Moroccan Muslims living in New Amsterdam now New York. So I was doing searches for the name Muhammad and all these old historical records and ran across Muhammad Ali ben Said, you know, Nicholas Said. And the more I learned about him, because he had written his uh, two versions of his own memoirs, the more I learned about him, the more I was drawn to him. He, he, he was a very uh, interesting character with a, with a beautiful background, a beautiful story. And although the story does take place nearly 200 years ago, it seems to me it still has resonance in present-day America, doesn't it? It sure does. I mean, one of the things that I think it really talks about is the value of immigrants. He came to this country, he had very little money when he arrived, um, he was almost broke, and he just threw himself into service, into teaching, into into the war, into being a registrar for voters. I mean, he just threw himself into serving his fellow Americans, you know, because he became an American. So I think that the story of an immigrant in this country, the story of, of an African-born immigrant, I think is, is very powerful. And earlier in your career, you were part of a team of investigative journalists that uncovered a major corruption scandal of former San Diego Congressman Randall Duke Cunningham, which ultimately landed him in prison. Uh, how did your investigative experience help you to uncover this story, which takes place, you know, again, nearly 200 years in the past? This really was a, kind of a reporter's job, I think. You know, unfortunately, there weren't any living individuals that I could talk to, but there were plenty of newspaper articles, of diaries, of government documents, some of the same kind of stuff that we did in the Cunningham case or in any investigative story that we looked for. There, were, there wasn't a human trail of human voices because they're all dead, but there was a good paper trail. And it required some investigative digging. Some of his documentation 
I had to contact archives in Europe to get contact archives in Russia and Latvia and Amsterdam and London, as well as going personally to places like Alabama, Boston, Michigan, where he actually lived during his stay here. And so some of the records of his stay are located. And in the foreword to the book, you talk a little bit about the process of how to handle racist language you found during your research, uh, particularly the use of the N-word. And you ultimately decide to use that word unredacted. I'm curious, could you talk a little bit about that decision? Yeah, it was a hard decision. The N-word is something that, that I have no tolerance for no matter how it's used, even when it's used in rap songs. That having been said, I think that, that, you know, we were tempted to use just dashes and dashes to replace the, the word, but I think that kind of whitewashes history. I think that to use it as it was used then, as it was so commonly used, you know, in newspapers and speeches and just common conversation, I think that for an accurate view of history and an accurate view of how visceral some of the racism at that time was, I think that, that it's, it's necessary to remind people. It's necessary not to anesthetize it. It's necessary to, to let it be visceral. And why do you think the story of Nicholas Said's not more well-known? I mean, how did he get lost in history, you think? I think he was a victim of the end of the of Reconstruction period. I, I, you know, during the reconstruction of the South, he actually he went on a lecture tour through the southern states that actually drew a lot of people and got good reviews, both from black and white audiences. But I think that after reconstruction, the South kind of had this brief flirtation with learning about African history, learning you know learning about the people who had once been their slaves. And that history was very brief, and he sort of his reputation got kind of disappeared in the late 1870s, right, right as Reconstruction was ending. To the extent that we don't even know how and when he died, it, it was sometime after 1882, which is the the last record, official record we have. But we we don't even know when he died because he he just disappeared from view. That was author Dean Colbreth speaking with Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken about his new book, The Sergeant, The Incredible Life of Nicholas Said. Colbreth is hosting a book launch party tomorrow at the Veterans Museum in Balboa Park beginning at 6.30. For more information, go to kpbs.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. San Diego State University officially launched its Center for Comic Studies last year. One of its goals is to demonstrate the power of comics to foster diversity and inclusivity and identify social injustice. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with University of South Carolina professor Kiana Witted about a public lecture she'll be giving tomorrow at SDSU inspired by her Eisner Award-winning book, EC Comics, Race, Shock, and Social Protest. Kiana, you are going to be giving a talk at San Diego State University as part of their comics classes. I love the title of this. I'm just going to give part of it, but Captions and Corpses. So <laughs> explain what this talk is going to be about. 
I've picked one of my most favorite chapters from my book on EC Comics, which is a comic book publisher from New York that produced comics during the 1950s. They weren't as big as what we now know as DC and Marvel or big superhero publishers. They were horror comics and crime comics and science fiction comics. And I'm going to be talking about a chapter from the book on that company and how they used elements of the comics form, the actual text and the captions and the dialogue to relay, I'm not going to say substantive messages, but because they were known for severed heads and aliens and all of that, but to relay, let's just say, uh, some social and political messaging about racism and anti-Semitism and a lot of other things that were sort of raging around the country in the 50s. Now, for people who may not be familiar with comics at this time, EC Comics really stirred some controversy on certain levels because this is around the time of, you know, this kind of obsession with juvenile delinquency and how comics might affect young brains and things like that. So give people kind of a context or a a sense of what the world was like when EC Comics was making these books. That's right. So we're looking at post-World War II And superheroes have been big, and they still were during this time in the late 40s when EC got started. But the company actually started off that EC in the title stood for educational comics. And when the company was owned by Max Gaines, they published titles like picture stories from American history and Bible stories and tiny tot comics and funny animal comics and they were losing a lot of money because they were not selling. And then when Max died, his son Bill Gaines took over and the company was in the red and he and his editor Al Feldstein were thinking about what could they do. And so instead of turning to superheroes or to kids comics, they said, well, we really like the old witching hour radio shows And they really loved those science fiction magazines and Pulp Fiction that was coming out at the time. And so they said, well, let's give that a try. And that's where we get The Crypt of Terror, later Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror. That's where we get Mad Magazine. A lot of people know Mad uh, from EC Comics that was about satire. They were on the cutting edge, particularly with the scary, with the horror comics. Again, when you're competing with hundreds of titles on the stand... The more graphic, the more thrilling, the more sensational, the better. And so it ended up getting them in in hot water, as you said. And, you know, being called in front of the U.S. Senate will do that as well. So they brought out a psychiatrist, um, Dr. Frederick Wortham. They brought in comic book publishers, including Bill Gaines, uh, the publisher of EC Comics. And so the result of of that scare, if you want to call it that, in 1954 was that While the hearings didn't result in any particular legislative changes, the comic book companies decided to band together and to come up with an arm of oversight through the Comics Magazine Association of America. This is where we get the comics code. And in your talk, what are you specifically going to look at in terms of that layout and that design and those elements and how that played into, you know, the actual storytelling in these comics? So what kind of things are you specifically going to address? Well, one of the things that fascinates me about those transcripts from 
the U.S. Senate subcommittee hearings is that when questioned about one of the more sensational titles, this one was called The Whipping, when confronted with this, Dr. Wortham went through and pointed out all of the violence in the story, all of the things that he found objectionable, including the fact that there is a racial slur for Mexican-Americans mentioned in the comic something like over 14 times. And so Gaines tried to make the case that this is actually a story against prejudice and that teaches kids that it's wrong. He said, one of the reasons why I can tell you, you know, that that I know this and that people are getting this message is because our readers know how to read our comics. And they know that if we put the message in the captions that we are speaking directly to them, the fact that Gaines tried to defend himself by saying, we've given children a map to know when to take our comics seriously and how to read them, I thought was really fascinating And so I talk a little bit about what it means that he tried to sort of separate out the layout of the page and the stories in such a way that the relevant current political messaging would get across, whereas the mummies and the werewolves would be all in good fun. And EC Comics is probably best known for doing kind of horror style comics. What is it about the genre of horror that proves particularly appealing to readers and also that allows artists to maybe express things in different ways than maybe more mainstream storytelling or more, you know, or other formats maybe don't allow? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And EC, they weren't the first to do horror comics, but they did them especially well. But they also used their horror and crime comics to a lesser extent as a way of sort of thinking about what it means to be the other and and othered. A lot of times what would end up happening in those stories is that they would put the reader kind of in a second person perspective. So sometimes they were the monster or other times it would be a child who sees something, but the adults don't see it sort of using the premise of a horror story to show how kids could be empowered or how it feels to be, to have people scream when they see you. So they found all sorts of creative ways. And then I will just say in terms of the fun of the story, EC was known for what they call the sort of, they call it the snap ending. They didn't come up with this, but it's very much like Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock, where there would be a sudden twist at the end of the story. So Readers loved that. They loved it when the culprit got it the way he or she gave it. So they found all sorts of ways to make, to surprise readers, to make them work in ways that other comics at the time weren't doing as much. And so I would also just add really quickly that a lot of their readers would go on to create their own comics, mostly in the 60s and 70s. So EC has a lot of influence in that way as well. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Professor Kiana Wooded. Her public lecture takes place tomorrow at 3 p.m. on the SDSU campus. For more information, you can find it at comics.sdsu.edu. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation 
presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.